Turn in your Bible to Jeremiah 31. And this sermon will be in two parts. And we will only be singing three songs together this morning. Some of you have noticed that we did not sing one of the songs on your worship guide. And that is because snow hindered practice, snow and cold hindered practice Wednesday evening. And to take some of the pressure off those who serve us so well in our music team, we lowered that down to only three songs. First, an overview of how the Old Testament lays a foundation for the entire biblical meta-narrative. What I mean by meta-narrative is the overarching story from Genesis creation to Revelation new creation. And then second, a quick focus on the book of Galatians, specifically chapter 2, illustrating how difficult it is for Jewish people and by extension for you and me, to release our grip from the Old Covenant. To release our grip from the law. The law is a schoolmaster. It was a tutor. That's what Kelly read for us this morning. It trained us. It tutored us till the point that we didn't need it any longer. The problem is we love performance and we love checklists. And so we want to bring the law back We're going to look at that and consider that and try to move forward outside of that so we are people that reflect the joy and the hope of new covenant people. Why do so many people fall for the Nigerian inheritance scheme? We joke about that. Emails keep coming in promising incredible wealth and reward. By the way, this this is no small operation of a few greedy men in Western Africa. BBC did an entire report on this. It is a global organization run by a violent mafia-style gang in Nigeria called Black Axe. They are linked to mass murder, fraud, and they have infiltrated several countries. They become a global power, not just a scamming operation, but a type of assassination group. The BBC tracked down two apparent scamming victims who said they were defrauded of approximately $3.3 million. Canadian authorities broke up a money laundering scheme connected to black acts in excess of $5 billion. So while we joke about the Nigerian inheritance emails, they are raking in billions. Why are so many people lured by them and defrauded? Because the promise of what? The promise of an inheritance. You are part of an inheritance you didn't even realize. And you could actually cash in on that. And a lot of people start responding and giving them details they should never have. Why? Because the incentive, because the motivation of a reward. You know, there's something hardwired in us that responds to incentive. And it's not wrong. It's actually there, created by God, where we actually respond to the promise of of a reward. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say when he returns, he brings his reward with him. That's part of living in light of his appearing, is living knowing that he's coming back to reward not just evil. No one gets away with evil. But he's coming back to reward good. Listen to what Paul prays. This is a prayer in Ephesians 1.18. He prays that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened or opened 
that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. Well, what is that hope? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? As we move from creation to new creation, there is an incentive of an inheritance. In Galatians 3, the same book that Kelly read from us this morning, it says this, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. By the way, he's highlighting to you two covenants. The law, the Mosaic, the Old Covenant, or promise, the Abrahamic Covenant. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Listen to this. Heirs according to promise. The terms inheritance and heirs mean something. Listen to what Hebrews 9.15 says, because it's actually going to connect the inheritance with the new covenant now. He says this. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Well, as we move towards that, let's consider the biblical meta narrative. The big story, if you're going to look at that, and in two weeks from now, I'm going to actually be, be teaching from creation to the cross to new creation to the children because that'll be one of our Lord's supper mornings where our children remain with us and i'm going to bring everything down and that'll be the last sunday of this sermon series and it'll be delivered to them hopefully as much as possible on their level with slides but that takes about an additional four hours of prep time the story of god's mission is to reconcile humanity and all of creation to himself it's not a collection of random, unconnected tales or conflicting narratives, but a single true story that is both diverse and coherent. And we need to understand that or we're just going to keep parachuting down into these little places of Scripture and proof-texting things that don't even matter in the big picture of why God gave us 66 books of the Bible. At the heart of the story is the grace-filled, redemptive activity and love of God that God loves us, that He sent His Son not to condemn us, but that we might be saved through Jesus Christ. So at the center, the very core of the narrative is the sending of and the incarnation of His Son, His unique Son, Jesus Christ, with a focus on His sacrificial death, bodily resurrection, and glorious ascension, where He now sits at the right hand of His Father waiting for something. He's waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. It's a foreign concept, but I just quoted scripture. The movement from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem is what all the stuff in between is all about. It's interesting that the focus, if you start reading Genesis 1 and 2 compared with Revelation 21 and 22, it it is all about a dwelling place for God. A place where humanity enjoys God's direct presence. Do you remember that, that Adam and Eve would walk with God directly in a very unique way in the cool of the garden. And they compromised that by, by, by obeying one of God's creations rather than their creator. They were expelled from the garden. That dwelling place actually will pick up again in Revelation 21 and 22, but in a better way. Listen to what Revelation 21 says. 
And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to what he says, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You know, in Eden, what you have, you have two humans living with God in a unique way. And then in Revelation, you have a large number of people dwelling with God in a unique and better way. That's, that's where this is all moving. Listen to Revelation 7, 9 to 10. I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And as, as that progresses, you see a unique dwelling place with God. If you go back and you look at the images of the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle, right? That was the tent in the wilderness, temporary. And you have the temple at Jerusalem, both pictured and pointed to the same thing. And that is that God would dwell among his people. As models or microcosms on earth, the tabernacle and temple illustrate God's intention to dwell with us. As a matter of fact, that, that's what it says in John chapter 1, that Jesus came, the Word came, He took on flesh, and He tabernacled among us. He dwelled among us in a unique way. But that wasn't the final way. He said, it's better that I go away, that I can send another, another one, a comforter to you. But that wasn't even the final way. These are all stages pointing to the fact that God desires to dwell with His people the tabernacle was temporary and the temple at Jerusalem was defiled by its inhabitants, even by its religious leaders. And as a result, they are exiled first by the Babylonians. They are exiled. They are kicked out, if you would, not unlike Adam and Eve from the garden. These pictures, these themes keep popping back up. But in that context, in the Babylonian deportation and exile, the prophets rise up and start to give a promise. The promise of a new covenant. The promise of a covenant that can't be broken. The promise of something different. A cleansing that could never happen under the old covenant. The Torah, the law. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, this new covenant is explained. Matter of fact, look, I've had you open to Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Remember, the people are in exile. They're still, they're actually experiencing tangibly the curses of the old covenant communicated in Deuteronomy. Jeremiah prophesies this, Behold, the days are coming, future, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, the Mosaic, the old covenant, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Think Passover, Exodus law. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Hold your place there and turn back to Deuteronomy. 
Now, if you're on an electronic device, just go to Deuteronomy. Israel was to be a holy nation, a royal people who kept covenant, and they were supposed to be, in a sense, a missionary to the rest of the world. Throughout Deuteronomy, the emphasis on the importance of Israel being a righteous or a set-apart holy nation. This is reflected in several ways, one being the Lord's description of Israel as Jeshurun, the upright one. Look at Deuteronomy 32, and I'll begin reading in verse 15, and know that Jeshurun refers to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 32:15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock, capital R, God, that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. Referencing back again to the Exodus, the Passover, the journey through the sea, at which time the Hebrews became a nation. Verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation, listen to the family terms, of his sons and daughters. You know, even though Israel was God's treasured possession, that didn't guarantee them that they would always live under his divine favor. Back to, the, back to Jeremiah's prophecy. Go back to Jeremiah 31 and we'll finish reading the prophecy of the new covenant beginning in verse 33. Now think about that. Think of the curses they were living under. Think of the exile. Think of God turning and spurning them. Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And here's this dwelling place idea again. And they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I, this, this is a beautiful, not, it's, it's a beautiful new teaching that they haven't quite realized yet. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Right? The end of that cycle of Law and obedience and disobedience, sin and sacrifice, and then obedience again, and then that cycle keeps going. No, there'll be a covenant in which I will remember their sin no more. It's interesting, that was prophesied during the exile. After they came back from exile, guess what they did? They built a temple, but it's empty. The glory of the Lord does not descend upon the post-exilic temple as it did during Solomon's day. And the people are left at the end of the Old Testament with questions wondering how and when and where this new covenant would be established. And most of all, wondering who the Messiah is that would inaugurate this. Matter of fact, the Old Testament ends with a hope and a warning. Listen to Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, who is that? 
Tap into your New Testament. Who is the messenger who's going to, what, who's going to go before and proclaim the way before the Messiah? Matter of fact, he says this. I'm not even worthy to, to unlatch his sandal. Okay, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek, the Messiah whom you are waiting for, will suddenly come to his temple. Interesting, that's where he goes. The dwelling place of God on earth. And listen to what he said. Listen to what Malachi says. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen to what he says. This is the last chapter of the last book of the old covenant. Malachi 4.4. Remember the law, right? The old covenant of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Then all of a sudden you have 400 intertestamental years where God is at work, but there's no new scripture. Then in fulfillment of predictive prophecy, God suddenly appears at his temple. Let Let me read to you two places in Mark chapter 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Comes back the next morning, Mark 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. And guess what he does? He begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This is the outer court. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for, listen to this, all the nations? Think Revelation 7-9. Think the Abrahamic covenant and the promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. But you have made it a den, a safe haven for robbers. See, what they had done is they had taken the only place in the temple set up where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, could go and worship, and they turned it into a marketplace. The Jews really, in in doing that, said, non-Jews are not welcome. We're going to use your area to sell things and buy things and exchange money so you can pay the temple tax. We're going to be very religious while not obeying God. So the Lord did suddenly appear at His temple, and He was not pleased with what He saw. In the New Testament, beginning in Acts, a very different kind of temple after the temple in A.D. 70 is destroyed. A very different kind of temple replaces the old system. And it's actually a temple, one, that is evidenced right here this morning. It's a temple constructed of believers. They are called a temple and stones and a priesthood. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 19-22 says. You, non-Jews, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, New Testament, and the prophets, Old Testament. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by 
the Spirit. What is Paul referring to? He's referring to the church. Not the church as we know it, a church with walls and a church with a steeple and a church with events and programs and disappointments or even hurt or even glorious days or even low harvest days. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the Spirit indwelling a people of all nations, worshiping the one true God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the word church nine times in the letter to the Ephesians. That's how we as stones fit into the grand narrative of Scripture, that we become a dwelling place with God because He has given us in His Spirit who what? Indwells us, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament foreshadowed all of that. Yet, and I want us to hear this, while the creation of the church itself is an essential part of God's overarching mission, it is not the end. It's not, it's, it's not the goal. The fulfillment of God's missionary activity for the whole earth involves the new heaven, the new earth, the new city Jerusalem, which happens after Christ's second coming. Now, many years after Jeremiah prophesied this new covenant, and for over, a, for over a thousand years, Hebrews, Jews, would observe the Passover. They did that in accordance with the Mosaic covenant. They would take the Passover meal and they would do it in a very strict way. It is marked by several cups of wine and a variety of foods and prayers and actions. This, this is what you observed if you were a Jew. Keenly aware of the meaning and history of the Passover, Jesus did not speak the words of tradition. Instead, in Matthew 26, I want you to turn there. I want you to see the words here. Matthew 26, verse 26. Jesus sat down with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal departs from tradition. And look at Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Wait, whoa. That's not what you say at Passover. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, and that was probably the third cup of the meal. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of what? The covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we are dwelling together, we will eat and drink with Jesus. Jesus lifts the Passover cup of wine and proclaims, this is Luke's record in Luke 22.20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. This new covenant fulfills all the previous covenants God made to His people made possible only through Jesus Christ. 
He inaugurated it and He fulfilled it. And we as a church, as a living temple, have realized that new covenant in part. Is that how you are living? Is that the joy that you have? Are you living... Has has the law been a schoolmaster to bring you to Jesus and now... Are you living this simple? Jesus made it so simple. What's the the greatest commandment? It was a trap by lawyers. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Or you could say, the second proves whether you're obeying the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the prophets. That's how simple it is. New covenant living. Not dietary restrictions. Not rituals. Not ceremonies. Not liturgy. It's beautiful and amazing and it offers great hope. So why do we, like the Jews, have such a hard time letting that go, the law, and living like new covenant people? Turn with me to Galatians 2. Galatians 2 is a very important letter for the church to understand because it protects life under the new covenant. While you're turning to Galatians 2, chapter chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, is a straightforward defense that there is no other gospel. There's one gospel to add or subtract from it, redefines it and changes it and makes it no gospel. And Paul, Paul issues this warning, whether, whether an apostle or an angel preaches to you any other gospel, let that one be accursed. He only uses that word anathema twice in scripture, and it's both related to an understanding of the gospel. In chapter 1, 11 to 24, Paul gives an autobiographical apologetic. He gives his testimony about persecuting the church and about being more zealous than his brothers that are his same age. He was running the performance treadmill of religion and he was winning. As we move into chapter 2, Paul describes a time... 14 years later, when he went up again, referring to a meeting he had in Jerusalem that had incredible consequences for us all, even us as a church. Paul took two members from his mission team, Barnabas and Titus. You can see that in verse 1 of chapter 2. And then look at verse 2 because it explains why Paul went up again. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. Let me just give you a snapshot and and spoil the end that's peter and barnabas and james and initially paul confronts them personally privately because he's confused about something that they have revised or changed and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential the gospel that i proclaim among the gentiles So I'm going to the Jewish leaders and I'm trying to get some answers, some clarity, and I'm doing so, verse 2, in order to make sure I am not running or had not run in vain. Now, nothing was undermining Paul's certainty of the gospel, but something was, was threatening his converts. And what was threatening his converts was Jewish legalism. 
Paul did not doubt whether the apostles had the true gospel, but he wasn't sure if they would be true to that gospel in how they lived. What's at stake here in Galatians 2 is the purity of the gospel and the true unity of the church, and it matters. So here's what's going on really quick as we we jump in and we take the remainder of our time in chapter 2. On one side, Paul is saying this, the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ is for all people and transcends cultures and cultural boundary lines. Yet there are some who seem influential, they're Jewish apostles, and they're saying not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians should follow distinctively Jewish patterns. But that redefines the gospel. What's amazing is that even good people resist change. Good people resist moving out from the old covenant and living to live in line with the new covenant. For the Jews, it was the law. Give me a checklist. Let me outperform others. Paul even said in Galatians 1.14, look back at that. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. It does not matter how zealous you are or how much you outperform others religiously if your behavior redefines the gospel. If you're starting to say something about the gospel that is not true, or that all of a sudden you make the gospel feel like a weight and enslavement rather than joy and freedom. Look at Galatians 2 verse 3 because you have a living illustration. Titus, who is, who is an uncircumcised Gentile. By the way, that doesn't mean much to us, right? We don't go around asking those questions. But the fact that Titus was a Christian and on the missionary team and he's a Gentile and he's uncircumcised, big deal. Especially to the Judaizers says this, look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Which shows to you that the apostles in Jerusalem initially responded rightly. They weren't going to push this ceremony upon them. Do you know externals have to do with our doing? And internals have to do with our being? The beautiful thing about Jesus Christ and the New Covenant is He starts from the inside and it works out. But a lot of times we've been taught to focus on the externals, the outside, so that we look like we're good inside. And that's not what new birth is about. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel, talking about the New Covenant, says twice that God is going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what new birth does. The implications of this are so important for our understanding of what the gospel is. All the regulations of the Old Testament, all the ceremonial cleanliness. I mean, if you had eczema, you had to leave the camp. If you had baldness, you had to go outside of the camp. I mean, they're exasperated. And what it was was a crushing reminder that you can't make yourself clean without help. And we desire one who can finally step into the pages of history and offer a once-for-all sacrifice and cleanse us from all sin. Instead, we extract big principles from the Old Testament and put them forward as a moral code for others to adhere to. And, we're, and then we say, well, I'm not even sure you're born again if you're not doing that, or you don't follow that, or you don't reject that. 
That redefines the gospel. Don't miss the beauty of Galatians 2.3. Titus. Titus is a living illustration of how a person becomes spiritually clean and acceptable through Jesus Christ. Not through any works or ceremonies or law, but in Christ alone. A Greek, uncircumcised man. That is why Paul said their freedom was under threat. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 4. False brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Why? So that they might bring us into slavery. Here's the appropriate biblical response to people who want to add to the gospel, who want to make the new covenant feel like the old covenant. Look at verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why such a demarcation? Look at verse 5, the rest of it. So that, here it is, this is the big deal. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. Those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential. Do you think that was bothering Paul? <laughs> right? I mean, I came and these, these apostles are big deals by now. Or I came to that church and those, those deacons were big deals. Or those elders, that lead pastor is a big deal. Peter is a big deal. No. Those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, right, non-Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9, and when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, they were the ones that were invited to the top of the mountain to see Jesus Christ transfigured, which made them a bigger deal, which they thought because by the time they came down from the mountain, they were arguing with the other disciples. Do you remember that? Who's greatest? Well, we must be because we got invited to the party. And you didn't. And you're down here and you can't even cast out this demon. Right? Read the Gospel of Mark. It would be funny if it weren't so real and sad. who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. Listen to what they initially did. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Not circumcision, not dietary regulations, not ceremonial cleansing. Just remember the poor. Different men, different missions, one gospel. Now we're going to move to the last part. Because the scene now moves from Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, to Antioch, a Gentile city. And in both places, what matters is the clarity of the gospel. Yet what complicates verses 11 to 14 is this. It is a situation that includes a man who is an apostle, influential, a pillar, the leader of the twelve, and he's wrong. And guess, guess what his name is? Peter. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
Verse 12 indicates the problem. For before certain men came from James. See, he was fine eating, eating with the Gentiles in Antioch while nobody was watching him. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, certain men, came, look at, what, look at these phrases. He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. By the way, Peter knew God had abolished the dietary restrictions. He receives a threefold vision in Acts 10 where the sheet comes down with all kinds of animals on it. And God says, Peter, rise up and kill. And, and most of us would be like, dinner time. And Peter says, no, never eaten anything unclean. And God has to say, what God has made clean, do not call common. Three times. While he's having this vision, someone at the door. He meets with Cornelius, by the way, who happens to be a repentant Gentile who had received Christ and was born again without any of the dietary restrictions. Peter knew, Peter knew what this meant. In Acts 10, Peter says this, verse 34, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. It's exactly what Paul said in Galatians 2.6, that God shows no partiality. So listen to Acts 11, 2-4, because this is going to be confusing Peter went up to Jerusalem to the circumcision party and they criticized him. But they, and they said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them. It was clear to Peter what life under the new covenant looked like. It was Peter who argued in Acts 15, 8 to 9, that God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the same Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So why did Peter draw back on this occasion? Did you catch the one, the one phrase? Look at verse 2 again. He drew back. This is a strong man. This is a seasoned minister. He's an apostle. He drew back and separated himself because of fear. There are entire church cultures that operate on the basis of fear. Does it work? Peter, Jews, and Barnabas, the son of consolation. Hypocrisy is infectious. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. You ever feel like that at school? You ever felt like Titus probably feels now? And they were all eating with me. Everything was great. And all of a sudden, this really narrow band of people come from Jerusalem, the circumcision party, and all of a sudden, Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews change tables. They pick up their little cafeteria tray. No, you know, that's our, our language. They pick up their cafeteria tray and they all move to the popular table. And there's Titus and the other Gentiles being like, what just happened? The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas was on a mission team with Titus. And now he's like, hmm, dirty, uncool. Look at verse 14. Here is the disastrous effect of Peter's wrong separation. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Our conduct displays to everybody whether we truly believe the gospel 
whether we are new covenant believers or whether we want to default under to the under the performance of the old covenant. If we make the new covenant appear as the old covenant, we have misrepresented Christ and compromised the gospel. It's interesting that Paul traces the gospel back to the Abrahamic covenant. Look at Galatians 3, verses 7 to 9, the last long passage this morning. This is his argument following his confrontation with Peter. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Jews want to make, make it a big deal about being Jewish. And, and Paul says, no. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand. Wait a minute, to who? Abraham. You know the Gospels in the Old Testament? Saying, in you shall all the nations, not just Jews, be blessed. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's what James says, right? If you offend in one point, you've broken all of it. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The New Covenant. Look at Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Here's that word again. Heirs according to promise. So that's what the promise was. It was the gospel and the full rights of inheritance as a son. But be careful. Let me read Galatians 5.1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Peter actually comes back. Thankfully, Paul confronted him for his unbiblical separatism that redefined the gospel and compromised Gentile converts. But Peter comes back as he usually did. Let me read to you 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Okay. How, Peter, are you, are you going to include restrictions? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look what he includes. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Finally, Peter got it. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, available to all nations by God's gift of grace. I'm going to invite the, minute, the music team forward. You know, although we confess that Jesus fulfilled the new covenant in, this, in his life and ministry, the promise, the ultimate fulfillment is yet to come because we have an inheritance in heaven. 
Right? Living under the new covenant does not mean we do not wrestle with our old sinful hearts. We do. We struggle to grant forgiveness beyond our small doses that we, that we hand out to other people. We default back to the law and performance. We walk by faith, but we stumble. The new covenant is going to have its full and final realization when Christ returns. So Jeremiah's prophecy remains a hope. But it is a hope that is underway and will fully arrive in God's timing. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah said, the days are coming, says the Lord. Last scripture, 2 Corinthians 3, 5-6. Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, Not of the letter, Old Covenant, but of the Spirit, New Covenant promise. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Michael Gorman said this, To pray for the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Lord, is to commit oneself and one's community to embody the values and practices of that kingdom now in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Let's pray. I'm simply going to close in prayer with the model prayer that Jesus gave to His disciples. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, may Your name be kept holy. May Your kingdom come soon. May Your will be done on earth as it is in Heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.